0: Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at ChemicalCityReads.com.
1: Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed making by letting Barton Kane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing, happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Kane here for you. Visit www.bartonkane.com.
0: Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening
1: to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them.
0: We're back. Is it just me or does it feel like it has been like six months since our last episode? It does feel like that. I
1: I actually was like, wait, did we miss an episode? Yeah, I felt the same way earlier today. I was like, wait, it's been a minute. I know.
0: It just feels like last week was a month long. Uh-huh. I don't...
1: <laughs> and you know what that means? We're back to school. We're back to school. I'm listen I'm happy to be back I'm happy to have a schedule it's probably good for me to get out of the house but man do I miss my house
0: well it's good when you are a dog owner because you have that excuse of like oh I gotta run home and let the dog out Mm -hmm. (laughs) how has your back to school been for you
1: it's been really good it's been super busy Especially because I gave a recital the first week of classes. I, I think you
0: have the right idea.
1: Let me tell you. It was a little bit stressful to put it together this early. How does it feel to have it over with? I feel so great right now. I feel <laughs> so footloose and fancy free. And if I need repertoire for anything for the rest of the year,
0: you're good I'm you done. Know.
1: I've got it. <laughs> You're the smart one here. You know, that's not true. No, I'm thinking
0: like that's there's something to be said about this tactic for sure.
1: I have to prepare nothing. Well, and also like audiences are like, we're back. We're excited to all
0: be back. So I bet you had good attendance. Yeah, it was good attendance. People liked it. The middle and the end of the semester always seems great because like, oh, I have a ton of time. But then, you know, you're at the end of the semester and it's like there are five concerts this week. You know, what ones am I going to go to? I I think you're you're onto something here. I think it's
1: a good tactic. Would do again. Highly recommend. Highly recommend. The only thing that I would do differently is if I because I did basically a chamber music concert yeah but tell us what you played duos so i did um a piece called three ways to cook a fish by philip fry which was the slam dunk of the entire program people love that, that piece.
0: electronics piece
1: yeah it's oboe yeah, and piano, or oboe and electronic gamelan and of course you're gonna do it with electronic gamelan
0: yeah, I love that piece. I thought it's it was so, so cool. good. Yeah.
1: It's so good. So I did that. And then the Sequeira, uh three etudes, mm-hmm. which um, shout out to Meg Quickly. I watched a video of Ben Coelho talking about Jose Sequeira on uh, one of y'all's talks that is on mm-hmm. YouTube. So I used a lot of that to write my program notes. And I did uh, a piece by Libby Larson called Kathleen as she was for oboe and harpsichord. I should specify the Siqueta is for oboe and piano. Mm-hmm. It's a fabulous piece. And the piece for oboe and harpsichord uh, has this great story to it. It's like about this woodcut artist's like specific image of a lifeboat that he named after his first wife. It's really, it's a really cool piece. It does not sound like anything that you would think it would sound like.
0: (laughs) Yeah. uh, When we got to it, because the live stream didn't have the program on. And so you walked out and there was a harpsichord. And I was like, oh, it must be some Baroque piece or whatever. They started playing. I was like, not a Baroque piece.
1: um and then this was so special I did a piece for oboe and harp called every which way by my student Josh Strobel he's an oboe performance major um junior and he wrote he he was like I'm interested in composition I was like Josh if you write me a piece I'll play it on my next faculty recital and he followed through and he wrote this piece for oboe and harp and it's really great so I'm going to post I'm going to post it for people to listen to because I think they should. Mm -hmm. And uh, also shout out to Kincaid Rab because Josh has been taking composition lessons with Kincaid. And Kincaid writes a ton of double read music. So it's Mm -hmm. like so perfect. And then I did a couple of uh, the Debussy five pieces for oboe and harp that were arranged by Bert Lucarelli. And so I had the pleasure of dedicating that recital to the late great. And uh, then I ended it with the Andrea Clearfield uh, three songs after poems by Neruda for oboe and double bass, which I got to play with my friend Taylor Hollier, who lives in the Baton Rouge area. So it was like basically an oboe plus. Yeah, <laughs> something. love it it was really a lot of fun it was it was great i i i think if i were to do it again this early uh and i wanted to do it like all oboe and piano program i would probably rehearse the repertoire late spring semester so Mm. that we're not panicking like coming back to the fall but but yeah 10 out of 10
0: would recommend awesome
1: yeah how's your getting back back to school been
0: it's really good. It's, uh you know, I keep having to remind myself, like, the beginning of the semester is always a little hectic as we settle in to our schedules and just reminding myself, like, the intense feelings will not last forever. And it has started to dissipate. I am in recital prep now. I've got about uh three weeks before my faculty recital, which is going to be um premiering the works by Maori composers that I commissioned last year. Um and I it's it's going to be a really cool recital. I have this concept um, where the whole point of the project and the grant was examining indigenous relationality and the inspiration for the whole uh project was the collaboration between Taika Waititi who is Maori and Sterling Harjo who is Native and them collaborating on Reservation Dogs which is this Native run TV show and so Taika has talked a lot about being inspired by Native American film uh, for like Maori promoting and representation and that type of stuff and so I'm gonna have a work and then I'm going to pair it with a scene from indigenous film and like use that to construct a narrative and kind of make it a lecture recital you know me I don't like to give like just like straight up recitals that's kind of not what I'm about so much and so I am just super excited about this concept and right now we're trying to figure out like how to work with like the lighting and the screen and the this and the that and uh but I'm really excited about it and the like narrative and all this stuff and so uh but the music, some of it is pretty, uh, you know, requiring a lot of practice. So I'm putting in <laughs> my hours and making my reads and, uh, yeah, just really excited to share that with audiences though. So that's been my like primary thing and just getting back. I've been loving being around the students and, uh, again, and working with, um, my little bassoon students and all that fun stuff. So yeah, I'm happy to be back.
1: I love that recital concept. Not only is it more interesting for you and the audience, but it's also a little chalk break built in between each piece. It is. You're right. Oh, so genius.
0: Thinking like an oboist. (laughs) That's right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're like, how long can I take to swab? (laughs) (laughs) Uh.
0: ACDC Reads is a one-woman bassoon reed shop in Minnesota run by Ariel Detweiler producing over 1,200 reeds per year. Selling beginner and advanced level bassoon reeds, ACDC Reeds are hailed by customers for their even intonation, ease of response in all registers, warm tone quality, and strong low register. Every reed is made from tube cane processed in-house to Ariel's specifications using Rigotti or Lavaro cane and a Rieger 1A shape. You'll also find bassoon-themed gifts in the shop, including greeting cards, stickers, artistic prints, and the ever-popular Blackwing Bassoon Pencil. Make sure to follow ACDC Reads on Instagram, where Ariel posts artistic photos and educational stories about her everyday experiences with readmaking. ACDC Reads is proud to sponsor Double Read Dish, sharing positive and uplifting interviews to inspire and connect the bassoon community around the world. Find ACDC Reads at acdcreads.com or at retailers like Chemical City Double Reads, Midwest Musical Imports, or Reed Supplies Canada. Try out ACDC Reads today and let the
1: reed do the work. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians from around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100-plus years of experience among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. We are so happy to welcome to Double Read Dish, Gina Kafari, co-principal bassoon of the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra. Welcome, Gina. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I love being the one to ask our first question, which is always, how
2: did you start playing the bassoon? Oh, my goodness. Okay, so as probably many people have said in the past, um, I just kind of, happened upon the bassoon. It was not an instrument that I knew much about at all. Um, I knew that it existed. I didn't know much about the instrument. In fact, when I was, oh, I think I was in fifth grade, I wanted to play the flute because every other girl in my class wanted to play the flute. And I was a bit of a follower at that point, wanted to do what everybody else was doing. And I, and I really, truly enjoyed the sound of the flute. Well, I took one home and for about two weeks, I tried and tried and tried to get a sound out of it. And I just couldn't, I could not figure out how to make a sound on the flute. So I brought it back to my elementary school music teacher. And she knew that I had had uh, piano training um, already at that point. And uh, trying to think how many years, maybe four or five years of of piano lessons at that point. Um, And so she knew that I had a sort of somewhat of a grasp of of musicality but also physically she knew that my fingers had been getting a bit of a workout <laughs> um and she herself told me that she played the bassoon and she thought that the bassoon might be a, a really good option for me so she happened to have a few instruments at her disposal which i mean what elementary school music teacher has a few instruments at their disposal, right? Um, and she gave one to me to take home. She showed me how to put it together, gave me a read, and didn't didn't say another word. She said, I just want you to take this home and see if you can make a sound on it and see what you can do with it. And uh, she actually had done the same for a few other students. And uh, I I realized quickly, that this was the instrument in one of my favorite movies that was featured in one of my favorite movies, uh, at the time, which was Disney's Fantasia, of (laughs) course, Sorcerer's Apprentice. Um, and I knew, you know, I knew the sound from, from Sorcerer's Apprentice and I thought, Oh, all right, this is pretty cool. I can get into this. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, gosh, I remember just trying to play like three blind mice or something that first night and thinking, oh, not only can I make a sound, but I can already play a little melody. This is great. This is much better than the flute. <laughs> so I uh so that I, honestly, that was it. I mean, it was that teacher that introduced me to the instrument and um just kind of gave me carte blanche and said, here, just do what you do what you can with it. Um she just she had good instincts, you know. How um, much
1: taller was the bassoon than you at this? It was,
2: it was definitely taller than I was. <laughs> it, it was, yeah. It was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know, not more than like an inch or two, but it definitely <laughs> was taller than I was, yeah. Um <laughs> You could have taken it to the fifth grade dance as your date. True. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) I spent a lot of time with it. That's right. Even at that young age. I mean, and I think that was also partly from my piano training. I realized that, okay, I knew that if I wanted to play an instrument, there was work involved, even at that young age. So, um yeah. And it was great because I was so inspired um, just because I, it, for whatever reason, she must have given me a good read too. Uh, I just remember being able to play up and down um, the instrument pretty easily at that point. Um, it was a, it was a really nice Fox. It's probably like a number three or four model. You know, those are great instruments for kids that age. So uh, I had a really nice setup from a from a young age. It was great.
0: Can we hear about getting serious about the bassoon and thinking, oh maybe this is something I want to pursue in college professionally, that type of thing?
2: Yeah, so you know, I started playing in my um my school's ensembles. We didn't have an orchestra, we did not have an orchestra program at our school in our school district. Um, but our bands were fantastic and all of my uh, band teachers were were just so charismatic and inspiring and you know inspired a lot of people to to actually participate in in the in the um, groups. So that was nice. Um, I enjoyed I think that was really when I I realized that I enjoyed playing with others that I loved collaboration. Um, and to this day, that's what I love to do the most. you know, chamber music is, is my first love, (laughs) you know? Um, so I, I really gained, um, a a love of that through my, my music program at school. And when I started taking, oh, and another thing I want to mention when I was in middle school, um, one of our, our music teachers, there was also a bassoonist. Mm -hmm. So I was so lucky and I'm still so grateful for all of the great training that I had literally from day one, on the instrument um so then going into high school i i studied with uh kathleen reynolds who is the second bassoonist in the rochester philharmonic orchestra i'm from rochester new york Um, and she was just the most wonderful teacher i still think about her to this day she she was kind she was patient but she was also Demanding in the best way possible. Um, She, you know, she she got me on a good a good regimen for just learning scales and just getting a good facility on the instrument, but also realized that I really had an affinity for singing on the instrument and literally singing as a separate instrument. That's also what I have done all through my life is, is studied voice as well as bassoon. Um, so I feel like she really found a way to combine those two loves for me in the instrument. Um, and that really, it, it made me realize that, yeah, this is, you know, music is, is what I love and both of these instruments are really great expressive vehicles for me. And I just, honestly, I, it, at that point, when I entered high school, um, I was already thinking of of going to uh, to school for music because I just couldn't see myself doing anything else. Um Music has always been in my blood and expressing myself in that way has always been in my blood. Um, you know, i I was an introverted kid. I still am to some degree. <laughs> I'm an introvert, and um, you know, having the bassoon and having my voice, um, were, were ways that I could express myself in, in ways that, that words couldn't, that, that I couldn't express myself in words or socially. Um, but getting up on stage for some reason, um, gave me that literally gave me that platform to express myself and I felt comfortable there. So I think that's why, um, yeah, I realized that around that, that time, that that was, um, that these instruments really helped me communicate with others.
1: There are, um, you know, there are some schools of thought where, okay, you have to specialize, you have to pick one. And then there are other schools of thought where diversify and, you know, integrate, and it seems like you fall into the diversify and integrate category. And I'd love to ask you about the benefits of that and how that has impacted your life and your careers being able to um not focus solely on the bassoon, but the bassoon plus voice and yeah. probably also piano.
2: Uh not so much anymore. Not no, no. anymore. Okay. <laughs> There's a little too many, too many instruments going on. Yeah, there for a while. two diapers. Okay. Got it, got <laughs> yeah, it was, it was too difficult to sustain all of them. But yeah. uh, no, it's really interesting I, that you actually perceive that about me because yes, I feel like now in my life, I'm, I am trying to integrate both singing and, and bassoon into kind of one way that I express myself. But for a long time, it wasn't that way. I, I felt like I really did have to choose. Um, and so entering, college. Um, it was interesting. I auditioned on both voice and bassoon. And again, I studied, I, you know, I studied classical voice for a very long time in, in uh, my younger years. Um, so I, I really wasn't sure which one I wanted to do more. And I, I also was pretty involved in theater, musical theater. So I was interested in a lot of different things. <laughs> and I loved all of it. And I truly didn't know what I wanted to try to have a career in. Um, But when I started auditioning, it it was apparent right away that there weren't as many bassoonists as there were, you know, sopranos in the world. I mean, I already knew that, but, (laughs) um, but it just made me realize, man, this is, you know, if I love singing, but singing, you know, I'll always have my voice inside my body. And I feel like that's something that I could always kind of do on the side if I want to, but focusing on the bassoon just seemed like a smarter, in my mind at the time, a smarter move. Mm-hmm. Um, just because just from the sheer numbers <laughs> I figured, well, maybe I'll have a better chance at having a career at playing the bassoon than I will playing or than I will singing mm-hmm. just because there are still so many bassoonists in the world. You know, it's crazy to think about that now, to think that that's really what you know the reason why I, I decided to go into the bassoon. But also, I started realizing that there's more scholarship money mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that way. So, anyway, ultimately, though, what what really um, led me to the decision to to go to the Cincinnati School of Music, Cincinnati Conservatory. CCM. Oh, <laughs> long, it's the Cincinnati College Conservatory of
1: Music. Yes.
2: That's right. Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music. Thank you. Um, ultimately, what, what, um, made my decision was, was meeting Bill Winstead. Um, I just absolutely adored him. Bill Winstead and Martin James. I studied with both of them and they were both Just such wonderful musicians, wonderful people. And I remember meeting them in the audition thinking, you know, I think this is the right place for me. And I remember Kathy saying the same thing. She said, I, you know, I would advise you to go to this school and study with these fabulous musicians. Um, And so, and so that's what I ultimately did. But what was nice is that when I got there, I, I did take voice lessons the entire time I was there as a um, as an elective. And I studied with students of Barbara Hahn, who, I don't know if you know who she is, but she's a a huge name in vocal pedagogy. Um, she's, you know, the best of the best. And so I felt like I was really getting, you know, the best of, of both worlds there. So I was, it was a really wonderful, wonderful experience to be at that school at that time in my life.
0: Could you continue walking us through your training and educational journey and embarking on your professional life?
2: Yeah. So I actually don't really know what it was (laughs) that made me say to myself, I just, I I want to go to New York City and I want to study in New York. I want to try to work in New York. I don't, I really don't know. (laughs) what made me want to do that. But while I was in undergrad at CCM, um, I started to think think about that and think about all of the different, I think it was just that I knew that there are many different types of career opportunities in New York. And I still wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to play. I knew I wanted to, to try to still sing a little bit if I could. And I just thought New York would be you know, the place to that would allow me to find the right path for myself. Um, so I started doing research and I, I started looking up all the schools in New York and I saw Frank Morelli, Frank Morelli, Frank Morelli, Frank, you know, listed in every single one. So I thought, okay, I need to, I need to meet this Frank Morelli. And I, of course, <laughs> I had already heard about, you know, I'd heard of him already at that point. And um, another kind of interesting, Uh, I don't want to say twist, but really that now that I think back on it, it really is so interesting that I met my friend when I did. So um, I have a a good friend who is a vocal jazz major at CCM and um, we became good friends. We ended up being roommates when we moved to New York city together. Um, one One of the first conversations I ever had with her, was was this she's I said oh now what do you do here oh I, I sing I said what do you do I play the bassoon she said oh your cousin who plays the bassoon I said oh okay cool you know his name's Frank Morelli you ever heard of him excuse me yeah and I was like what? what wait what and this is right when I had just started to think about you know what I what my next steps were and I just started thinking about him and looking him up. I said, you've got to be kidding me. I can't remember exactly what kind of cousin, not a first cousin, but somewhere in there. And she said, yeah, I see him, you know, every year when we go visit so-and-so in upstate New York. It's like, you've got to be kidding. And it turns out that she and I became very good friends. And as I said, we moved to New York together and I ended up going to uh, study with Frank Morelli at Manhattan School of Music for my (laughs) graduate studies. So it just it was a very, very weird coincidence that that happened. (laughs) I really was, I mean, I mean, now I feel like it's, it was my destiny, you know, to to meet her (laughs) and then find him. And then, you know, because my, um, my, my life and my career really took off after I met Frank and studied with him. Um, so yeah, so I studied two years with him there at MSM and, you know, he, I, I'm sure a lot of other people have said this already on your podcast to me. He's just such a wonderful, not only wonderful musician, but just a wonderful mentor um, and friend. You know, I, I, I'm really lucky and grateful to, to call him a friend at this point in my life. Uh, but he will always be my mentor. You know, I look up to him for so many reasons and in so many ways, but um you know, he was really wonderful to a lot of us at that time. You know, I think if if he really felt that you were, you know, you really wanted this career and you were ready for it, you know, just one recommendation here or there would put you, you know, with the right people. And if you did your work, you know, if you showed up and you were ready to go and you were prepared and you did well, then, you know, that one opportunity blossomed into to many more. And mm-hmm. in the freelance world and in New York, that's really how it all happens for you. And especially at that time when there was, I mean, I, I'll go ahead and say, I, I graduated um, from MSM in the spring of 2001. And so at that time, you know, there were many more kind of quote unquote freelance orchestras, um, you know, kind of part-time orchestras that were that really were thriving. There were there were so many more than there are now, unfortunately. Um, so there was more work. There was more work, and so those of us graduating um, really did have the opportunity to uh, to kind of integrate ourselves into the into that world. And but again, you know, you needed to have that one recommendation or that one introduction or network in a certain way um, for it to all start. Uh, so for a lot of us, you know, it was a crapshoot. We had no idea if we were going to make a career for ourselves, but I, I made the decision. I said, and I remember telling my parents this too. I said, you know what? I wanted to at least try, I'm going to give myself a few years, you know, I'll work on the side and I knew I wasn't going to be making too much money right away. Um, because also I had, you know, had a lot of friends who were in the business for a a little while longer, they said, you you know, you got to pay your dues. You're not going to just, you know, start working like that right away. It doesn't matter how great you are, how prepared you are, how good of a person you are, you know, it takes work and and it takes time. And that's true. I mean, that was really true for everybody who now has Mm -hmm. a, a career, um, as a freelancer in New York. Um, so I, you know, I was persistent. You know, I just, I really wanted this. I really wanted to have the varied career, um, in, in bassoon playing that, that I do now have. I was never somebody who wanted to just only go out and try to get an orchestra job and take auditions right away. I did do that as well, but that wasn't as exciting to me as, as I said, having a kind of a, a diverse career and playing chamber music, playing in a lot of different orchestras, playing new music, um, maybe playing as a soloist here and there, although that didn't happen till many, many years later. But also for me, you know, really trying to fulfill that that singing <laughs> place that, I, that I, st- I still had the desire to sing. And I was still trying to find ways to do that in New York as well. Um, so for me, that was always what I wanted: is to try to try to have that diversity in my music career. And I, I you know, I didn't know of any other place other than New York where one could even attempt to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so as I said, I had no idea how it was going to work out. I just, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to give it a try. Um, so I, yeah, I never really had a clear goal of, of where I wanted to go and what I where I wanted to be playing who I wanted to be playing with I just wanted to play music with great musicians and sing music with great musicians and um and it all has led me to this point and I couldn't be more grateful
1: can you tell us about the day of your orpheus audition <laughs>
2: I laugh because <laughs> I should do the math. How many days really was it? Oh, um, I,
1: now I really want to know.
2: Oh, <laughs> I could tell I could tell you in years. Oh, God. It, yeah. So gosh, I could have a whole podcast just about Orpheus auditions for an hour. Okay. So <laughs> Orpheus is unlike any other orchestra. Um we are basically one large chamber ensemble. And as you all know, you know, playing in a chamber ensemble, you need many more skills than just being a great musician. Yes, that is number one, but you also have to be a great colleague, right? You have to bring ideas to the table, interpretive ideas to the table. Um, there are so many additional, um, I say skills, but really Kind of just ideas and 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 behaviors and ways about you that that you have to bring to Orpheus in order to kind of qualify for what they're looking for, um, because it's you know we're we're kind of one big family. <laughs> Sometimes we're a dysfunctional family, but but most <laughs> of the time we're we, but we really are. We operate in that way, and that we. Um, you know, we come to a rehearsal and let's say we're playing a, a Haydn symphony, um we all rotate positions. So it's like like you said, I'm a co am co-principal uh bassoonist of the orchestra, which means that in a- any given program, if there are two of us in in the program, we will we will swap places. So for one piece, I'll play principal for the next piece. Frank or whoever is there will play principal. Um, So it's truly democratic in that way. And the strings for every single piece, the strings um, switch up their seating as well and rotate around. So there's always a different concert master, always a different, always different principal players. So we are truly equal in that way. And we value every single musician in the orchestra in that way. Um, So, so, you know, when you come to rehearsal, you have to, there's no conductor, Right, so you have to know you not only your part inside and out, but really the whole score inside and out. Um, and then rehearsals are so so interesting and so gratifying and challenging <laughs> because we all together interpret the score. We 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 figure out how we're going to play the music together, and uh, not only physically who's going to cue and who's going to lead which section and who's going to follow and you know the physical um parts to it. Um, but also again, the artistically, you know, who's going to lead this phrase? Who are we going to listen to here? Who are we going to balance to over here? What character do we want in this section? You know, just there's so many you know, so many detailed artistic details to work out as well. Um, So we all are expected to, to not only be completely prepared in that way, but to bring our ideas to the table and to, and to speak up and to, you know, and, and, and not only to be a, a leader in that way and be assertive in that way, but then on the opposite end also to receive information and to be told, oh, you know what, your idea is great, but we're actually not gonna use it. <laughs> we actually don't like that. <laughs> you know, we'll try <laughs> it, but actually no, we don't like that idea. So also being you know, just, just being okay with with um having your idea axed. You know, there's so many so you have to have the right personality is what I'm getting at. You have to have the right personality for the group and you have to be able to work well with others. You have to bring ideas to the table. There's just, there's a lot to it. So all that being said, um, the, odd you know, an audition for the group is really just playing with the group over a long period of time so that the members of the orchestra get to know you're playing and get to know you as a person and as a whole musician that is Um, so lovely it's it's lovely but it can take a very long time and (laughs) in my case well I should say when I started subbing with the orchestra um there were you know there were two um two bassoonists there. So there were no openings at the time that was for maybe the first four or five years that I, that I subbed there. But then, um, when, when an opening became available, there was still another seven or eight years before it was built. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know the ins and outs of it, but it, but it took a long time. Yeah. So Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a a unique way of doing things. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm currently one of, I'm currently in an elected position, um, and the orchestra, uh, that is an artistic director position. There are actually three of us, um, that are members of the orchestra that at any given time are in these positions and they, they rotate. So we're only there for three years. Um, then another, I'm, I have one more year to serve and then somebody else will take my place. Um, But it's a really wonderful, this is just one more level of, of us, you know, as the musicians being able to, to lead the orchestra in a different way. We, we have a large staff in in the orchestra, but the three of us um, are on staff and we do, you know, have a lot of, um, should I say our voices are heard mm-hmm. for sure in, again, all artistic areas of, you know, from programming to, you know, who we collaborate with, to where we play, to how we run the orchestra to, I mean, there's just, you know, hundreds of, of things that we <laughs> tackle. <laughs> um, and so it's, it's an interesting, it's interesting to be on the other side of things because, I don't want to say that the audition process is, is going to change in the future, but we we do have to think long and hard about the way we do things. And we're a, kind of a transitional moment with our orchestra. Um, we have a lot of, of members who are deciding to become emeritus stat- members to go to emeritus status. Um, so we have a large number of openings for the first time in the orchestra. So we're we're rethinking, kind of reassessing things and trying to figure out new ways and more efficient ways of doing things. So
1: I, I also love that, you know, in addition to being an excellent musician and being a great person, there's also the expectation of having administrative capabilities and organizational uh, skills. And uh, it really speaks to the diversity of skill set that you need to have as a self-employed musician
2: It's so true and I feel like in this day and age this is something that we all need to have right these mm-hmm. are skills that we all do need to cultivate um, and hone maybe we already have some but we need to you know or maybe some of us don't have any of these at all I it you know and why would we you know for for most mm-hmm. of our training it's really all about learning how to play your instrument in the most masterful way. Mm -hmm. Um, luckily it seems that, you know, a lot of conservatories and other institutions are starting to realize, okay, we need to change our training program a little bit here because yeah, this, our musical landscape in this, at this time really demands that musicians are more than just a player. You know, we, we have to, be entrepreneurs. Um, we have to know um, how to promote ourselves and and how how to create organizations. I mean, listen, there are a lot of people who still only want to audition for orchestras, have that orchestra job forever, and that's it. And that's great. But as as we know, we you know a lot of us don't necessarily want to only do that. And if given the opportunity, I think a lot of people would like to do that and other things right and have their own group have their own chamber group and you know create special projects and perform you know at various venues that are maybe non-traditional I mean there's so many so many opportunities now that I feel um are available to us that were not available to us even five years ago ten years ago um it's, it's wonderful to see. I, I, I think, and being in New York, I, I, you know, I'm lucky because, you know, there's, there's so much, uh so much activity. There's so much great artistic, um uh, I don't know, just, there's so many ideas that's electric here. And I see so many people doing incredible, new, innovative um, projects that, that kind of fuse what we have, been taught, you know, fuse the past and past works with maybe new ways to present those works or presenting works in, 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 in a new way, um, with, with new technology or in a new venue or, you know, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. But of course, then there's, you know, all the great new music that's also being created now. So there's, there's just so much more that I think audiences are also, interested in hearing and seeing um, that I think you know a lot of organizations didn't want to risk I think a lot of organizations didn't want to risk programming kind of newer again either newer presentations or new music because they just weren't sure how it would be received. but I feel like we've seen enough positive feedback and reaction now from the general public that, a lot of like major organizations now are. I mean, if you look at the programming for next year, like at the Met and New York Philharmonic, I mean, it's it's great. There's a lot more experimentation and exploration in newer realms that we've ever seen before. So it's. I think it's really exciting. Um, and, and going back to what you said, yes, like that means that in this day and age, of musicians, I feel, need to have in order to create those new new projects we need to have different skills yeah I'm so inspired by
1: everything that you're saying um and I wonder if this is our present since you have you know you have like a finger in every pot it seems like and what do you see is the future of our field like what does the future look like in your world oh my gosh that's a hard question. It's an unfair question, so you don't <laughs> have to answer it if you don't want
2: to. No, I just, I think, again, for me personally, I just think that um, I, I see larger organizations, which, I, you know, traditionally are just the hardest types of organizations to to shift away from, you know, however many years of of tradition and history of doing the same thing. The fact that we're starting to see a shift in some of these places just gives me a lot of hope because it just means that you know we're we're starting to think outside of the box and we're trying to connect with audiences. I mean, that's what it's all about. That's what it should be all about, right? is is trying to to do what we do as musicians and as artists. But to serve a purpose, right? To connect to an audience, whether that means that we want the audience to, to share in our enthusiasm or to uplift the audience or to mourn with the audience to heal together, you know, whatever it is, we need to try to make that connection, um, with audiences. And I, I, I feel like people are finally starting. I'm just saying people, I think musicians always have tried to do this, but it's the upper <laughs> staff right? This, the, the administration is now seeing this too, that it actually pays off Mm -hmm. in the long run, right? That this is something that people want to see. We want to see, you know, representation of of people who live in New York Mm -hmm. on stage at the Met. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's going to bring, you know, of course, that's going to be a huge hit. You know, when we finally are, are programming, um, you know, opera composers that are not white men anymore, you know, or even white women were finally starting to branch out a little bit. And what has happened, it has brought brand new audiences to the Met. And I'm not just talking about the Met, but, you know, other places too. And um, it's, cre- it's, it's, it's a, a catal it's become a catalyst for just brilliant new work, mm-hmm. you know, and, now I, I i so that's what i that's what i hope is that we continue to go in that direction and that we get more and more people into the theaters into wherever this music is being performed and hopefully it's not just going to be performed at lincoln center anymore but you know we're branching out and going to um different communities and parks and who <laughs> wherever like you know non-traditional spaces where where people do traditionally socialize. And, um, I feel like that's also part of it too, is, is kind of going to where people already congregate, <laughs> you know, cause that's, that's the easiest way I think to, to make connections. I don't know. There, I, I think about this a lot because the job that I'm in right now. And I am very inspired by my colleagues some of my colleagues who are doing a wonderful job in this realm already like i want to give a shout out to my wonderful friend um alex Davis who's doing great work in New York with his his uh, group um his chamber group his chamber series um but there are, yeah there are just a lot of a lot of people who are starting to realize this is how you make these connections and I just hope that more organizations continue to think that way. I know it still has to be about the finances too, but I think when people start to realize, oh yeah, we are bringing in new audiences. We are getting people in seats. People are paying. Um, maybe it's a different pay, payment system. You know, maybe it's a pay as you wish or something like that, but people are are valuing what they're hearing. Um, so I, I hope that that continues in that direction. I love that.
0: Yeah, that's all so inspiring. Um, I did want to circle back to something you were talking about earlier, which is, um, obviously we discussed you doing both voice and bassoon as a musician. Um, but I also know that, um, as, In addition to two different streams of interest, you have integrated those in performance at the most recent Meg Quigley did a work that called for you to both sing and play the bassoon, Um, as well as your pedagogy you referenced um, striving to sing through the bassoon and giving workshops to allow young musicians to do the same so could we hear more about how this integration informs your bassoon performance and pedagogy.
2: Yeah, thank you for asking that. This is something that I think about a lot as well. Um, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I, yeah, it just so happened that I started taking bassoon lessons and voice lessons around the same time. So I should say like serious bassoon lessons and serious voice lessons around the same time. And I didn't realize until much later, um, when I started doing more teaching, um, as a bassoon professor that these two instruments for me have always been integrated without even realizing it. I just didn't even realize it until I started to have to describe <laughs> in words, you know, I mean, this is right when as teachers, it's, it's actually so informative to us as performance because we have to actually describe what we are doing, what we are physically doing when we play. Um, And it real, it made me realize, oh my gosh, I'm thinking about singing when I when I play this phrase I literally physically feel like I'm singing when I'm playing this phrase so how can I first of all is this is this beneficial to my playing (laughs) I had to like figure out because there are actually some things um that are not beneficial but there are multiple um techniques that that certainly are so I had to figure out which ones um I do use to the benefit of my playing. And then, and then I had to figure out how to actually, um, give that information to my students. So, you know, I, I do, I figured out that, um, First of all, just hearing, I won't get into the whole thing about what I actually do, but, um, um, when I, when I talk to my students, but there are definitely, there's definitely a lot of overlap between what you physically do when you sing and what you physically do when you play the bassoon. And I found that just, you know, kind of talking about bassoon playing and certain aspects of it from a slightly different angle, right? From, from the, the, the perspective of a singer using their lungs or this perspective of a singer, um, using vowels when they sing to, to sing text. You know, mm-hmm. these are things that we can and should be doing when we play as well, you know, just kind of simple concepts, but these are things that we don't always think about when we play and don't always talk about. Um, so yeah, I, what I like to do in, in workshops and even just in, in lessons or in master classes, as I like to think about, playing the bassoon from, um, a singer's perspective or yeah, kind of, yeah, the kind of the other way around, like, okay, as a singer, how do I play the bassoon? What are, what are some techniques that I bring to my playing when I, when I both sing and play? Um, that again, it, it's not like rockets. It's not like there's any, there's something totally different that I'm doing, you know, that other people haven't figured out, but it's just reframing it. Um, and describing it in a slightly different way and visualizing, you know, anatomy and, and things that are going on inside of your body in a slightly different way. Um, and I found that that's, you know, for, for some of my students, that's been really helpful to them. Um, I think concept of sound is really what it comes down to though. You know, when I, and this is actually where my bassoon playing has helped my singing yeah. for a long time. I, you know, was not taking voice lessons and not coaching or doing anything like that, but I still once in a while had to get up and sing in public. <laughs> um, And it was, it was hard because I was not in good shape. Um, And I didn't have a teacher to really help me get back in shape. And so I had to figure out for myself how to do this. And what's interesting about being a singer is that you are, you know, your voice is constantly changing as you, as you age, as you go through different phases in your life, like after you have a child, for example, or when you have a child, um, your chords change. They thicken, they lengthen, they do this, they do that changes your voice. Mm. It completely changes your voice. And so you're always having to, um, you, you really have to always, almost always go back to square one. Whenever you're you're singing, um, and that's why singers always have coaches because mm. they really do need somebody to always give them that immediate feedback. Oh no, you actually you need to do this because it's sounding like this, right? Because you also can't trust what you hear.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, it's the sound that is being produced out that way is what everybody's hearing, not what you're hearing in your head. And that's the, you know, to some degree, the same. That we need to think about bassoon playing too. Anyway, um, there are so many things that that we can learn. I feel from singers um, that I, I try to bring to to bassoon playing. But sound is a big one, and I really, I, yeah, I my the sound that I now feel that I at least strive to produce on the bassoon is what I strive to produce when I sing. It's like the the, the two do inform each other and almost kind of like uplift each other. It's like, Oh, no, no, no. I like what I'm doing here on this particular note on the bassoon. I want to see if I can capture that same quality when I sing this note in this range. You know, it's a really interesting thing to be able to, to kind of compare and contrast that way. Um And to, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting for me as a, as a performer, I, I like having those, those, not that not dueling instruments, but it's almost like they're trying to always one up each other <laughs> and it, and it pushes me to get better and to listen mm-hmm. even better and to strive for an even better sound all the time.
1: Mm-hmm. I would love to have you of course mentioned where you teach and um, describe to us um, what you look for in an auditioning student.
2: Yeah, so I I've been teaching at uh, New York University and NYU um, in New York for quite a while now. Um, I'm I'm an adjunct professor there. I, I teach lessons. I uh, coach chamber music. Um, I teach readmaking workshops and classes. Um, I do a variety of other things as well. And this fall I will be teaching at Stony Brook University. I'm going to be um yeah entering there at the fall. I just um I just got the job <laughs> at the end of last year. So yeah, thank you. you. Um and I'm just thrilled because I'll be um oh, again it's it's crazy to think about this but um I'll be I'll be taking Frank Morelli's place there. And it's That's just, so special. I, I was just going to say, it's in an incredibly special position to be in. Um, I don't even, I'm not even starting to th- begin about how I can fill his shoes because I can't, you know, he's his own amazing <laughs> person that um, I will never be equal to, but I'm hoping to bring, you know, my own special expertise to the table at that school.
0: Although I'm sure he felt the same way taking over for Stephen Maxim and That is as, true. <laughs> so that's so awesome to see you in that position.
2: Oh, thank you. Um but yeah, things that I look for in an auditioning student, you know, really it's it's motivation and attitude more than anything else. You know, if if I you know, hear a student play, it doesn't even really matter where they're at yet. Um, if that, if I talk to that student and that student, um, portrays a real love for the instrument, um, you know, has some goals (laughs) for the future, um, that's important, you know, even if they're not quite sure, like I was, you know, what exactly I wanted to be doing when I entered undergrad or, or grad school, I knew that I wanted to, to have a career in music somehow. Um, and I knew that I wanted to work hard for it. So if I can perceive that though, that that person, um, has those goals, then to me, that's, that's really what it's about. It's that motivation and that passion for the instrument and for music in general.
0: Could we hear a bit about your read set up and habits like, uh, People love the nitty-gritty nerdy stuff, shape <laughs> and, you know, all that type of thing. But also just kind of, you know, advice in your approach as a
2: professional to read making. Yeah, sure. So um I have to say read making is not something that I love to do. Um it's, you know, it's part of, obviously we all have to do it. It's part of the part of playing the bassoon and the oboe. Um, but it's, it, i was never the type of person to get excited about <laughs> sitting down to, to make reads. Although I have to say, since I have been teaching this course at NYU, it's, it's been great for me because, um, it has forced me to go beyond what I am comfortable with and beyond my own, you know, read making parameters and explore with my students, um, all sorts of other types of shapes and profiles and this and that, and ways to do things that I never would have done on my own. Um, So I just want to say that that, that's actually been really great for me, but um, you know, for a while, well, so when I studied at CCM, um, Bill Winstead was, was very um, (laughs) particular uh, about, about readmaking, which was great because I needed that at the time I needed to have somebody's model of a read that I could 100% copy, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And so that was actually really good for me to do that. Um, And then interestingly, when I went to grad school, you know, Frank and I didn't really talk too much about reads. Um, I guess my setup was decent enough that I was, you know, achieving what I need to achieve, but I always felt like I, you know, I needed more. I needed to find the right, I think we all, Always already constantly feeling like we need to find the right setup. Um, perhaps it's just a never ending quest. <laughs> but I, uh, I took right, right after grad school, I took a, a lot of time to just explore different shapes and profiles. And I, I bought my first profiler. I still have it. It's, um, well, I can't remember when I bought it, but I have an MD, MD breed profiler, just great. You know, you can adjust. The settings very easily and that was wonderful because I was able to you know to experiment um when I had more time in my life <laughs> to work on reads and to experiment um, I I would do that and I would definitely work with different profiles these days I just don't have too much time on my hands to do that so what I've done is I've um, figured out, a kind of a general range of what works for me. You know, like a, a Fox number two shape is, you know, kind of good general middle of the road shape that I'll use on occasion. But I have to say, for the past few years, what I've actually been doing is instead of shaping and profiling my own cane, I go to Barton Cane and I purchase Billy Short's uh, Reed shape and profile. Um, and I believe you can, I, I, I've been using Ragati cane for as long as I can remember. I've tried others and I just still love the quality of regati. So that's, that's something that I've always stuck with, but you know, um, his, his shape and profile really work for me, for the, for the majority of playing that I do. And again, I do, you know, all sorts of different <laughs> types of playing from orchestral principal playing to second, baso- you know, bassoon orchestral playing to chamber music, to, crazy new music to solo stuff. So it's a really good read that, um, is very versatile for, for me that I found. So that's, um, these days, that's what I've been doing just because I haven't had a ton of time. I, I should say between September and May, um, I really don't have too much time to actually make blanks. So what I do is this during the summer, I usually just stockpile, um, all of my blanks, just make a ton of them. And then throughout the year, I'll I'll clip and scrape as I, as I need to. Um, and, you know, I have to say, it's actually probably for me the best way to do things because, you know, the longer you, you let a read sit around, I, you know, the, I feel like it's just a much more stable, stable setup. Mm-hmm. So once you do scrape, you know, I'll, I'll make a blank and let it sit for several months and then once I do start to scrape it's it's stable it it, it lasts longer um I find that it just in general just has a, just a better quality of sound too in, in my experience so well
1: Gina we could talk to you all day but we have to end and our favorite question to end with is what advice do you have for a young musician who
2: aspires to have A career like yours? Oh my gosh. I would say, you know, this is a bit cliche, but just don't give up. If if this is your passion, there is a path for you. And most likely that path is going to be unique to you. It's not going to follow anybody else's. So that's actually something that I wish I had known way back when, um, because I, I think I would have had less anxiety about what I was doing. I wouldn't have questioned myself as much along the way. Um, but every, you know, all of the successful musicians that I know these days, that I whom I love and work with, they have all found their own path. It is not, mm-hmm. and it's not a straight path to success either. It's it's very curvy and it goes up and down, and it's a bit of a roller coaster, but um. But if you really know what you want and you're passionate about about playing the bassoon and playing music, um, you'll find your way, and it'll be your own unique way. You know that was so wonderful.
1: Thank you for being on Double Reed Dish. I wish we could talk to you forever. Thank you. Same.
0: We hope you all enjoyed that interview the interview. And uh, (laughs) if you are headed back to school or back to work or back to the orchestra, uh, we hope that everything is kicking off delightfully for you. Don't forget to connect with us on social media. We love hearing from you and can't wait to join back with you for our next episode. Galit, who is on that next episode?
1: We welcomed Lindsay Flowers, Assistant Professor of Oboe at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Can't wait to share that with you. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads.